attention to a couple of people that are in the hospital. Buddy Luce um, is in the hospital having had two mild heart attacks, one on Sunday and one on Monday. So we want to pray for Buddy to get better. Um, there he is in the heart tower named after him. So we went up and saw him Monday afternoon and he was appreciative of a visit. Bobby and Allison Newman are members of our church and Allison gave birth to a boy, AJ, on Monday and something began to go wrong almost immediately and the child, they just don't expect little AJ to make it. So we we'll want to pray for that family and we've had two other families that have experienced the same thing with sons here recently. So let me pray. Father, for the food that you give us, we're thankful for the food that comes from your word, we're thankful. You nourish our bodies, you nourish our souls, you care for us in this life, and you care for us for eternity, and so we thank you for every good thing. Now, we pray that you would be uh, with the Bragg family and the Duggan family in the loss of their sons, and we pray too now that you would be with the Newman family as it appears that little AJ will soon be with you, Lord Jesus Christ, in heaven. Comfort all of these parents here on earth with the good and precious promises that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. We pray for Buddy and pray that as uh, he is in the hospital that he'll benefit thoroughly from the time there. We're thankful that he could get there uh, without any further harm to himself and pray that he would be soon back in church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like us to turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Now, I want to come down to verse 7. I want to read the rest of the chapter there where John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifested among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 
By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. And this one cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, when I became a Christian in South Florida, I ended up going back to the church where I was raised up, Memorial Presbyterian. I'd been away for a long time because my parents had helped plant a church in the little community of Lake Worth, Florida. And um, I went back to the church because there was a wonderful batch of young women there. And I was 22, and now I was a Christian, and I wasn't interested in the girls that were in the bars, but I had not lost my interest in girls. So I went back to that church, and lo and behold, there they were. Pat came about a year and a half, two years later. When she came... Um, I had kind of gotten devoted to the 23rd Psalm because it said at the end of it is there was this girl, Shirley Youngkins. It says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I thought that was a pretty good plan. So I was into Psalm 23. Um, as soon as I met Pat and we started dating and got engaged, she reminded me of another song uh, from the contemporary culture where the old gentleman in a booming back uh, bass voice says, You better pick up on one and leave the other behind. <laughs> and so <laughs> all of a sudden, my indiscriminate hugging of which... I mean, I was good at it. I love to hug them all. And she says, you are to hug them not at all. That was it. You want a hug? I'll hug you. You hug me. That's it. Now, I'm saying that to say I don't think that we're very good as Christians in understanding what it means to be loved. That's the point. You see that this passage begins with the word beloved. And he's used this word a number of times um, in this epistle. And he's going to use this a couple of more times before it's over. Be loved. And I just want you to think that that may be the most important concept in 1 John for us to latch on to. Who are you? If you're a believer, you are beloved. Now, when John writes his gospel, he comes to the end in chapter 
20 and verse 30 and 31. He says, you know, there are a lot of things that Jesus did that could have been written. But these things have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing, you would have life in his name. Now, it's the only one of the Gospels that ends telling us that the man has written this Gospel with a definite purpose to bring you and me to a definite conclusion. Well, lo and behold, one of the reasons why we really believe that John wrote John and John wrote 1 John is because 1 John ends with a conclusion statement. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. John's written this gospel that you and I may know that we have eternal life. Now, I would want to say, basically, that you may know that you are beloved. That's the purpose of this book. From beginning to end, it has no other purpose than to bring you to a conclusion that you know this. Now, I talk to a lot of people. You ask them questions, and they'll tell you that they hope so. You, they'll tell you that they think they have eternal life, or if they're the people that are talking like this, if they'd really be quite honest, they would say, well, I really don't know. And what we find is that this has come into this culture in which we live. And so we have people in churches, in spite of all the efforts of all the parachurch ministries, in spite of all the Billy Graham crusades and all the Christian television and broadcasting, when you sit down with people that are basically churched, you're basically going to get the answer that they're uncertain whether they are the possessors of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Um, one of the things I enjoy about my particular work is talking to people that are at the end. And some of these people that are at the end are very desirous of having this assurance. <clears throat> now, I was going to this one man's home for a good long while, and as I would visit with him, uh, it would just be rather average and bye, see you next time. But I was always talking to him about what the gospel was, who Christ is, what the response and the promises were. And I noticed about two years before he died, his, his language changed entirely. Now, every time I got ready to leave, he would almost start to have an emotional event and he would say something like this, you'll never know how much it means. You just don't know how much it means. And I kind of thought, what, what's this man saying? 
what is he saying? And what it came to me over a period of time that he was saying was, during the period of time of my visits with him, he had gone from not believing to believing. He had gone from not having this assurance to feeling very assured that he was beloved and had eternal life. Now, it was a problem in the early church. If it wasn't a problem in the early church, we could just basically rip 1 John out of our Bible and pitch it. Because 1 John is written in order that you may know this truth. Now, it becomes a little more than merely this. I've just tried to think of how to get across this idea of beloved. So I've decided to use some other scripture in order to try and show you the amazingness of this idea. Now, y'all just universally here understand the Bible. So if I came to you and said, there's an angel here, and the angel is coming to make an announcement, and the angel stands up and says to someone, hail, favored one, the Lord is with you, you would know that the angel was talking to whom? Who? To Mary. Now, if you remember what happened, the angel shows up and the angel says, Hail, favored one. And she is rocked. Would that be fair? Beloved. God says to you, Beloved. Now, there really isn't very much difference between this statement that you are beloved and what the angel said to Mary. Hail, favored one, could be just about the same thing as saying to you, you're beloved. Now, you know, the next thing that you see in this verse could be an analogy to what the angel said to Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now at that point, what do you think Mary might be thinking that this angel is? Maybe one of God's goofy angels? Maybe one of God's angels that's thousands of years old and it's starting to show how in the world is this virgin going to what? Bear a son. Now I want to bring an analogy to these verses. Beloved, let us love one another. Now how is it possible it is for a virgin to bear a son? Well, we say with God, what? All right. 
Now, some of you actually love me. <laughs> See how impossible it is? <laughs> now, there's a reciprocation going on here, but we'll leave that under the table. How lovely are we? You'd say, I, I, there are a lot of believers out there that I love, and goodness gracious, it's not from me. <laughs> it's a miracle. You're beloved. You're being called to love somebody. He says that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And Mary said to the angel that because of what the Most High is going to do in overshadowing you, this person will be called holy. He will be called the Son of God. We could say, John might have said it, for this reason you will be called holy. And you will be called the sons and daughters of God. If we're born of God, it's a miracle. If we can love other people, it's a miracle. And if you can understand that you are beloved of God, then you know that you've experienced personally, a miracle. Now, the ability to love other people is not something that's native to you. The ability to love one another isn't something that you can go to love school and get a course in and then go out and have some OJT practice and get better at it. You either have the ability to love or you don't. And if you do, it came from God. Now, I'm going to say something here now. I want you to listen to what I'm saying. What do you think, given that this epistle is written, that you may know that you have eternal life? What do you think is the most important idea that we're to carry away from this in knowing that we're beloved? Now, I, I think the danger is to jump to the conclusion and say, well, the most important thing is that we would go and tell other people. That is incredibly important. We, that's it. I would tell you that's got to be at least second place. That's at least second place. Here's first place. That the number one problem that we're seeing in our culture is that the church people aren't loving the church people. And the most important demonstration that the world needs is a demonstration of my how they love one another. Because it doesn't say here, beloved, now are you the children of God, now go love the world. That's not what it says. 
in this whole epistle. It really never says that. But in this whole epistle, from beginning to end, it's saying, how can you say that you love God and hate your brother? That's impossible. Because God is love, and if God has come into your life, then the love of God that's in you is going to cause you to love the ones whom God loves. Let's come at this from a different perspective. Let's think of what goes on in Acts chapter 17. Let's talk about it in this way. The beloved that are in Macon, and let's talk about the beloved that are in Athens, but not Georgia, Greece, the Athens of Acts 17. So we're told that Paul shows up in Athens, and the first thing that he does is typical. He goes to the synagogue. Now, he's in the synagogue. Now, what do we know about those Jews? He's in that synagogue, and there's Jews, and there's Gentiles who are known as God-fears who have come to believe in the God of Israel. And these, the Jewish people have been known as the blank of God's eye, the apple of God's eye. There they are. So now Paul starts preaching Jesus to them, And what happens? Well, it tells us that one or two of those Jews in there believed in Jesus. Well, you go and you see that Paul's next step is he's with the philosophers at a place called the Areopagus. And he's preaching to them. He's preaching of Jesus. And he gets to the point of the resurrection of the dead. And they just laugh him out of town. Except for this one guy whose name is Dionysus the Aeropagite. And some other woman named Damaris. And it says a few others. They believe in him. Now I want you to look and think of what happened there. It's very analogous to what happens here. You realize that. Every once in a while over in our synagogues here, lo and behold, what happens to some of these Jewish people that are in these synagogues here? What do they do? They become believers in Jesus. Well, what happened? Well, what happened is at some point in time, God extended the key of the kingdom into their hands, and they reached out and took the key And they entered into the the glory of Christ. What didn't happen to the others? Well, what didn't happen to the others is God didn't put the key in their hand. Some he put the key in their hand. To others, he did not put the key in their hand. Now you've got this thing over here on a hill that's buying up the town. What's the name of it? Mercer? That's the Areopagus. That's the Areopagus over here. 
And what's happening? Well, so we're sending our own Pauls over to the Areopagus, and they're preaching over in the Areopagus. And what's happening there? Well, you got all kinds of kids hearing these preachers, and some of them, God takes the key and puts it in their hands, and they become believers. But some of them are hearing the same thing, but God's not putting the key in their hand. Now, I want to ask a question. Which one of these people are the beloved? Which one of these are the beloved? The ones who what? At the key. They have the key. They have Christ. Now they believe. They're called the beloved. And so you look in, in a situation like Athens, from the best we can tell, there were a good number of people, but it seems like only a few were given the key. Let's make another analogy. Let's talk about the beloved of God in Macon, and let's talk about the beloved of God in the next chapter and the, that's about the, the people in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Paul goes to the synagogue, same pattern as he goes to the synagogue, and he's preaching. Lo and behold, some of the people believe. The rest of them in this synagogue run Paul out. Now, Paul's been there for a little while, and he's in the home of Prisca and Aquila, and he has a vision, and the Lord speaks to him. Now listen what the Lord says to him. Don't be afraid, Paul. You preach your heart out here, Paul, because, listen, I have many people in this place. Wow. And so pretty soon we understand that this becomes a very large and thriving church. Now, there are people all through Corinth of all different types, and God's going out and putting the key in their hand, and they're believing, and they're demonstrating that they are beloved. Now, what is the biggest problem in the church in Corinth? Was all their divisions. You hear it? Right out of the chute. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he says, People from Chloe's household have come, and they've told me of the divisions that exist among you. And then the rest of the book, what's it dealt with? In Christ there should not be these divisions. In Christ there should not be these divisions. In Christ there should not be this divisiveness. You are called to love one another. What's, if, if 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection is the greatest chapter in 1 Corinthians, what's the second greatest chapter? 13, which is about what? Love. Do you see this? Into this very large church, there was the need for the love of Christ to be the consuming passion of those people. And so 
we're called to love the beloved. That's what we're called to do. Now, I want you to come to grips with this. First of all, do you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You say, well, of course. Well, then the word beloved is written on your, your hand or wherever you want it. It's written on you. You're the beloved of God. Now, if you're anything like me, when I left the crowd when I was 22 years of age that I was running with, and I went over here and joined with the church and the people in that church, I looked over my shoulder. There wasn't anybody following me. I was going to Sunday school on Sunday morning in worship service. I knew what the other crowd was doing. They were sleeping it off. I knew exactly what they were doing. I've looked back through the years. I look back through the years, and of that crowd, I don't see many of them that have made this transition. I would have, now I, I don't want to draw a conclusion about them, but I have to draw a conclusion about myself. And that's what I would like you to do, is draw a conclusion about yourself. If, if you're here after all these years and you look back over your shoulder and see those people that didn't show up, what is the difference between you and them? It's in that word. It's in that one word, beloved. That's changed everything. You're the beloved of God. Do, do, do you look at yourself that way? Do you think of yourself that way? That's what John wants you to do. Now, one time we were having a good youth minister who needed to move back home to North Carolina. Irony, I was in the hospital right up here, and one of our women was in the hospital, and her daughter was a nurse, and she was with her, and the nurse's husband was there, and I went up there, and I didn't know the husband very well, and I said, well, John, where are you from? I'm from North Carolina. I said, well, what part of North Carolina? He says, well, one of those towns there along Hickory. I said, well, which one? And he named the town. And I says, and you know Sam Wall? You know that name? He rocked back on his heels. He says, I grew up with Sam Wall and Sam's brother. Sam had been my youth minister. He had to go back home. When he went to go back home, I was asked to say some words. And here's the words that I said to him. Sam, you're a wonderful person, but you're consumed with your own navel. And you've got to get over it. You're thinking about yourself. And you're not thinking about others. 
Almost all of us are guilty of that. We are thrilled that we're beloved. But to extend ourselves to the others who are beloved, now, now really, you don't want me to do that, do you? But in reality, that's what it's saying here. We have to love one another. It's an active thing. You know, before I was converted, love to me was in the shape of an hourglass. You familiar with what an hourglass is shaped like? That's what love looked like to me. Does that take much from me to love that? I don't think so. But after I became a Christian, I began to see people and not shapes. And as I began to see people, I began to see people who Christ was working in, but they needed something that I had. The only way they'd have it is if I supplied it. You've, each one of us has been given a piece of the puzzle that helps one another through the Christian life. Loving one another is an active choice that we have to make. But if we know that God has poured his love out on us, there's no end to the supply side of the love that we can give. We can never exhaust it. But we need to look out at one another. Where is the one another? Where is the need and how do we love them? We love them the way as much as we can that they need it. But this is where this is going. What does it mean to know God's love? It's to know that we possess something that possesses us and that it has to come out into our service to one another. We're going to look at this passage over a number of weeks. I would like you to read it over and think about what does it mean to be beloved? What does it mean to love other people? The other people that we're talking about when you go through here, and I would like you to read it over and over again, there is not enough demonstration of our love within the body. And that's what this passage is calling us to do. Let's pray. Again, Father, we're thankful to look into your word, and we're thankful for its instruction, its clarity, and we're thankful that it, it tells us of who we are in Christ Jesus and that we have this as a part of eternal life. Help us to live in the light of that. In Christ's name, amen.